0: If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 1, as we are making our way through the prologue of John's Gospel letter. This is our third week in this new series. Where John himself, as an apostle, a first-hand eyewitness, is giving us testimony to who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. Now originally, and you'll see noted in your bulletin, my goal this morning was to cover verses 14 to 18 and to wrap up the prologue, being the third in the series. It was fitting. However, in all of my preparation this week, I could not get past verse 14. And so this morning, we are going to have a one-verse sermon because verse 14 is probably one of the boldest, richest, most precious verses in all of Scripture. And it would be shame to me and shame to you if we did not linger on it for a while. In fact, as I sought counsel to make sure that this was an okay decision, um, James Montgomery Boyce, who I often go to, said this in a way of comforting me. I wish it were possible to approach John chapter 1 verse 14 as though reading it for the first time again. The verse contained something that was new and startling when it was written. This is the great sentence for which the gospel of John was written. And I will not disagree with Dr. Boyce. You see, John's goal in writing this letter, his purpose with this gospel account, is that we may know Christ. We may know Him as Son of God. We may know Him as Savior of sinners, and that by believing in Him, we may have life. The question then becomes, how? How is that possible? How can He be Savior of sinners? How is He Son of God? How, by believing in Him, would we have life? And John chapter 1, verse 14 gives the answer. It states it plainly. It states it boldly. With that being said, would you please follow along with me this morning as I read John chapter 1, verse 14. And for context, I will read through the 18th verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the hand of the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let us now go to him in prayer. Would you please bow with me? Lord, what a truth! What a needed and helpful and beneficial and corrective truth we find in your word this day. Father, I pray, has already been prayed this morning, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we need your truth. We need Jesus Christ, not as we imagine him to be, but who, as who the scriptures tell us he is. May we receive grace upon grace this day as we reflect upon Jesus Christ becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. Thank you, God, for your word. Please be with the preaching and hearing of it now, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, sometimes I believe we all need a perspective shift in our lives. There's an old saying, don't miss the forest for the trees. And that is a very true saying, isn't it? It is so easy for us to get busy and anxious and caught up in the the minute details. the, The fact that we can worry about this one specific thing and that this one thing that's not right or not where we want it to be can consume us when we'll fail to zoom out and appreciate all that the Lord is doing. And continuing in that theme of nature... I find, and for many people, um, it may be your case as well, that, that seeing or examining or exploring nature gives that corrective. I've, I've heard from many uh, who have witnessed the Grand Canyon for the first time. The vastness, the majesty, the paintbrush with which God used to paint layer upon layer upon layer, that there must be a God that I am a small, almost insignificant being in response and reaction to this just glorious creative power. One of my own personal dreams is to to go to the giant redwood forest in California and then while I'm there see the Charles Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa. But that's beyond the point. I I want to see the redwoods, those enormous trees, trees so vast that you can drive a vehicle through them. That to me just sounds glorious, to sit under their canopy and know that it is shading so much land. I can remember being at a wedding once for one of my best friends. He got married outside of Pueblo, Colorado and uh, at Sangre de Cristo Seminary uh, at the Sangre de Cristo Mountain Range. And the night before his wedding, he wanted to do something special for us. And so he took us up the mountain To this lookout spot. He said, We were going to go stargazing. Well, I I grew up in the country. I've seen stars. (laughs) That was not, I wasn't very excited about this opportunity. He said, No, Aaron, you don't understand. And so I went. And then I understood. For the first time in my life, I was in an unpolluted area as far as light comes. I had no idea. That there were that many stars. And was it the fact that there's that many stars there and not here? No, not at all. It's that the busyness and the lights and the city, um, even one as such as Columbus, it shadows it. But going to that mountain and standing there And looking at the stars of the heavens and thinking about words like Psalm 174, 4, which says of the Lord, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. It's just over a hundred of you, and I don't know your names. Not yet anyway. But to think about the heavens and know that the Lord says, "That that one's mine, and here's its name. And that one's mine, and here's its name. And that one's mine, and here's its name. Over and over personally that created a corrective in my life and it showed me my insignificance before a holy and mighty god. Why do I bring these examples up before us this morning? It's because John chapter 1 verse 14 is one of those moments. This verse should give us the awe-inspiring majesty and vastness of the redwoods, of the grand canyon, of the stars on a mountain top this verse should fill us with awe and with wonder. And so all we're going to do this morning, we're just going to walk through this verse and we're going to pick it apart phrase by phrase. And and hopefully my prayer is that when we are done, we say how great is our God. I'll read it for us one more time. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the first time since verse 1, John takes us back to this idea of the Word of God. He was mentioned as the Word of God in verse 1. Forgive me, I closed my Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This Word, the creative Word... The word that was from the beginning. The word that sustains light and life. That word became flesh. John is making the case here clearly and definitively that this word is Christ. For Christ is the eternal Son of God who came or became man. That is who he's talking about here. And it's not just that the Word was, but it's that the Word did. And what did the Word do? The Word became flesh. Now, I've said it in this series already before, and you'll hear me say it many times again before we're done. Anytime we approach a passage such as this, we need to ask, what is it saying and what is it not saying? There's a lot of theological heresies that, that we can run into if we're not careful here. And what John is not telling us is that Jesus, the Word of God, became like flesh. He is not saying Christ became like one who is human, that he simply put on a coat of humanity, if you will, that he assumed humanity in such a way that he looked human. There's a lot of great theological heresies in the church from that standpoint. Nor... Is this passage telling us that in becoming flesh, and John's gonna to, to, to flesh this out throughout the rest of his gospel, that he removed his deity? It's not an either or option. It's not, he's either deity or flesh. The holy God, the word of God, the one from whom all oh, the beginning owes its beginning, became flesh both God and man somehow Jesus was able to maintain these two there's a $10 theological term I don't like giving these out but uh, in case you ever come across it it's called the hypostatic union go and press your friends this week I learned about the hypostatic union in church what that has to do with is the dual nature of Christ Jesus Christ one man two natures I love what the Confession of Faith, chapter 8, says of this in section 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance, equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus became man, and yet He was still God. We have to be very careful in our understanding of Jesus. In fact, most of our, our, our problems in theology, most of our wrong thinking will be to minimize one of the two of His natures. We will either see Him as too little of a God or too little of a man. But what the confession is teaching and what John is proclaiming here in, in a very few, in, in few words that cannot be the case Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, left his heavenly throne, humbled himself, and became man, fully man, fully God. And then did what? What did he do with this new state of being? He dwelt among his creation. He dwelt among his creation. Now, if you've studied this passage before, Or if you know your Greek or Hebrew, it's interesting to note, and the word became flesh, and then that word right there, dwelt, actually has ties all the way back in the Old Testament. It comes from an Old Testament word. And that word is tabernacled. And so to rightly, or to interpret this literally, it would be this. The Word of God tabernacled or pitched His tent amongst humanity. Now, why would John, writing to a New Testament audience, writing to a mix of Jews and Gentiles, why would John tell us that Christ tabernacled with humanity? Well, he would do this because this is not the first time this has happened in history. In fact, we're told very clearly in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, this is when the people of Israel are wandering, they're going through the wilderness. They're looking for direction, they're looking for guidance, and God says to Moses, tell the people, erect a tent, for I will tabernacle with them. The presence of the Lord would would fill the tent, the tent would be holy and consecrated and set apart And the pillar of smoke and fire would descend upon it, the the visible presence of the Lord for the people. So much so that this would be when the people moved, they moved because the presence moved. And when it would stop, the people would stop and erect the tabernacle that they may dwell in God's presence. The Lord says, Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory was present amongst his people. All right, let's go back to the New Testament. What is John then saying? The glory of God is present amongst you in Jesus Christ In the Old Testament, He tabernacled in a tent. In the New Testament, He tabernacles through His Son. God's glory is with you. That's what He says here. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory of the Lord is revealed in the Son. And here's what's beautiful about this a few things I want to point out. First off, we, we have seen His glory. This is one of those key texts that tells us it's John of Zebedee that writes this. For there were only three when Jesus went up on the mountain, taking with Him Peter, James, and John. And what does the passage say if we read that account the glory of the Lord shone around him the majesty of who he was for a temporary moment for a brief moment heaven is peeled back and for Peter James and John the presence of God shone through and they were overwhelmed They were so overwhelmed prophets show up and and they're worried about pitching tents We gotta we gotta get some places together. We gotta get some beds together. I'm sure they're thinking about dinner. You know, what are we gonna feed everybody? What do you what do you feed a prophet when he comes back from thousands of years? Like what do you and 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 yet the moment the the scene is the glory of the Lord shining through Jesus Christ. Well, here in John's Gospel, he's saying, I have seen the glory of the Lord. Trust me when I tell you about this glory because I have seen it. I have beheld it. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. This is not a reflection of that glory. One of the the biggest scientific revelations in my life uh, was when I found out the moon does not shine any light, there's no light that comes from the moon. The moon reflects light from the sun. It only can reflect. It has none in and of itself. This is not what's happening here. This is, this is not a, a reflection of the glory of God. This is not a glimpse of what it would be like if we were to see the glory of God. John is very clear here. This glory, the glory you see in the Son, could only come from the eternal Son of God who is sent from the Father. This is the real deal. This is genuine. Why is that significant? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament. Moses asked the Lord, Lord, let me see your glory. God said, I can't let you do it. Because if you see it, you will die. My glory is so great and so pure and so wonderful and so true, you cannot behold it. He begs him and he gets the opportunity to, to see the, a, a brief glimpse of his backside through the cleft of a rock. We know that when Moses would go up on the mountain and, and dwell with God and, and receive the commandments, he would come back down from the mountain. And the people of Israel were terrified of him. Why? Why were they terrified of Moses? Because he had been in the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord reflected upon him. So much so they begged him, hide your face. We cannot handle the glory of the Lord reflected upon you. One one more real quick example. I love this one. We often think of angelic beings, and, and um, we, we either go to the bazaar, uh, to the, the, the wheels of fire and eyeballs and things like that, or far more often we, we go to the uh, a cute, cuddly, put it on a toilet paper wrapper, squishy baby. And that's how a lot of us uh, picture angels, right? If we're honest, right? It's usually one of the two. It's either, this is just so bizarre, if the Scripture didn't tell us we couldn't even conceive it, or cute, squishy baby, But what does the scripture tell us of angels? What happens almost without fail every time an angel shows up? An angel shows up, people fall on their faces, they are terrified. The text often says they act as if they are dead. And then usually the first word the angel has to say before it can give his message is don't be afraid. Why? Why is that the case? Where do angels dwell? In the presence of the glory of the Lord continually, daily, moment after moment, they stand in the presence of the glory of the Lord and even reflecting that glory to mankind is too much for man. And so they have to tell him, get up. They have to tell him, don't be afraid. They have to tell him, I bring you a message from him. But what John is saying here is not the moon, it is not the Moses' face, it is not an angel, it is that glory. And what's remarkable in this, Jesus in becoming fully God and fully man, however he was able to do it, did so in such a way that we could behold it. We don't run in terror at the face of Jesus. We don't have to hide ourselves at the face of Jesus. Um, We don't worry that we are dead in his presence. We can stand in his presence and we can behold the glory of God. And then my favorite part of, of this is this verse is the final clause here. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. What what wonderful phrases to describe this. So let's let's begin with truth. You can believe what it says. It is true. John is not making this up. John couldn't make this up. This is what he saw. This is what he heard. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what he confesses to us this day. It can be believed. And it's grace. It is gracious that that is the case. And what is grace? That um, simple definition we often attribute to it, undeserved favor undeserved favor. What do I not deserve about this? All of it. (laughs) Every bit. Do we, any of us, deserve our creator, our maker, humbling, humiliating himself, taking on our humanity for us? No. Do any of us deserve him coming into this world and taking on Sorrow and sadness and hunger and pain. Betrayal of friends and weakness. No. No, not at all. Do any of us deserve to stand in the presence of God and live? No, not at all. And yet what John says here is by the grace of God, these things have been granted unto you, if you but believe if you but believe. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. I've I've said it often in my life and forgot where it came from. It makes sense that it came from Edwards. Edwards says this of the glory and grace of God, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Do you think about that? The glory of the Lord has come. His presence is before us and we can receive it and accept it and be forgiven and all we bring to the table is what makes it necessary in the first place, our sin. The grace and truth of God is revealed in the fact that the word of God dwelt among us. This is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. Well, where do we go from here? This is true. This is a true statement. It is a profound statement, and I, and I believe Dr. Boyce is right. This is probably one of the most profound statements in all of the Gospel of John. Well, John is going to go on for many chapters now, and Lord willing, we're going to go with him. We're going to get to eight I Am statements, beautiful statements in the book of John. Some of you may say, well, Pastor, I thought there were seven. I'm going to add an eighth. So I think it is there. And what John says from here forward is all going to base itself on, anchor itself in right here. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. Glory is only of the Son of God from the Father. This I tell you in grace and truth. Listen to some of the things John's going to tell us in the remaining chapters. John 6. I am the bread of life. John 8. I am the light of the world. And then I'm going to add the eighth I am. Before Abraham was, I am. John 10. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then lastly, John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. What do all of these statements have in common? They are all contingent upon the Word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Also, how can I be right before God today? How can I be forgiven? How can I have life and life abundantly today? Well, Jesus tells us, By receiving Him as the bread of life. By receiving Him as the light of the world. By accepting that He is from the beginning. By seeing Him as the door and the good shepherd of the sheep. By seeing Him as the resurrection. And then that uh, pinnacle, John 14, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And knowing that no one comes to the Father except through Him. And in Him, He is our vine and we are His branches. The gospel is all through this letter. We will find it again and again and again and again and again. But we can only have the gospel if we accept John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When pastor, in reflecting upon this passage, when coming to the point of application, he said... While there are many points of application we can pull from this text, such as be compelled to live like Christ, to give like Christ, to love like Christ, to want to display the glory of God like Christ, to proclaim the truth like Christ, and on and on we could go. While all of these points of application are good and could be derived from this text, my prayer is that our conclusion is that we praise God for who He is and what He has done. It's a very simple message this morning. Like I said, I I could not get past verse 14 in my preparation this week. And so I ask of you, what that pastor asked of his congregation, that you may leave today in awe of who God is and what He has done. For I, I will tell you this, As beautiful as the Grand Canyon is, it's going to fade. As beautiful as the stars in the heavens are, they will burn out. As great and vast as the redwoods or the depths of the ocean or the uh, expanse of space or whatever you want to fill in that blank, and they're worthy, worthwhile things to consider. All of it pales in comparison to Christ. And if I could plead with you one thing this morning, it would be cling to Him. And in him and through him, you may have life. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, what a beautiful statement. What a, what a wonderful reminder this morning that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus Christ humbled himself, became man, fully God, fully man, and that by doing so, we have seen his glory. Lord, we need that truth. And it's by your grace that we receive it this day. And we can only receive it. We can only have it and benefit from it if we trust in you by faith. And so, oh Lord, would this passage drive us to belief? Would this passage cling us to you? Would this passage cause us to hope and rest and trust in you this day and every day forth? We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.